Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share with you that my book, Work Better Together, will be published this summer. This book is all about how to cultivate strong relationships to maximize well-being and create a more human-centered workplace. It's inspired by conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you. So check it out. It's available for pre-order on Amazon now. Loss can have an incredible impact on our lives, but how we respond to it can either lead us down a path of growth or stop us in our tracks. How do we move past pain to find purpose, passion, and even happiness? This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Karen Guggenheim. She's a happiness and well-being advocate, international speaker, social entrepreneur, and the founder of the World Happiness Summit. She's also an incredible friend and kindred spirit. Karen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jen. I'm so happy to be here with you. I know. I feel like we we talked about having you on the show for a while, and the day is finally here, so it's awesome. So I want our listeners to get to know you. Tell me the journey that you've been on that led you to becoming a real advocate for for happiness and and for well-being. Well, um, interestingly enough, my my story about happiness begins with... um, with with unhappiness and loss, actually, um, a personal loss. So um, in 2013, um, my husband actually uh, passed away from the flu, if you can believe it. Mm. And uh, and it's interesting that, that, I mean, as you would expect, that event really marked uh, not only my life, my, my children's life, and, and, of course, our friends and family, right? And, uh, and from that event, I had a real um, kind of fork in the road moment as to what I was going to do and how I was going to handle that experience. I had no control over the event, but I knew that I had control over my reaction to the event. And so um, initially, you know, I, I, I really didn't want to live because, and it wasn't like a morbid sense, because I think before you were even even unhappy about the event is so shocking for mm-hmm. at least in my case it was so shocking that um that I, I went into I guess my strength which is um analysis and, and and introspection and awareness and what I wanted my life to look like and so at first I was kind of done like like if you've had a fine meal and you're at the end of the meal and it was perfect and you don't want anything else you just want to go home and you want to want to spoil it and so that had been my my relationship with uh, with my husband, but then I remembered that I had two children, and so that that's when I decided that I was going to live, and if I was going to live, I was going to live happy, and I didn't know what that was going to look like. You know, I my undergraduate degree was in um, in psychology, but that was before Marty Seligman had launched the body of research for positive psychology and all those interventions. So I didn't know that there was a science behind happiness, but I guess some part intuitively in me um, knew that it would be possible through purpose and meaning. And so, of course, you know, it took a while for me to actually feel happy, 
because the event was so shattering and seeing the the pain in my children. But I decided to um, live purposefully and and try to really create a legacy for my husband's life because while it's it's true that he died, he also lived and he was magnificent and he was such a positive person and such a force and such. And so I wanted that to be part of not only his legacy, but mine, and then to show my children how to go forward. So four months later, I was doing an MBA at Georgetown University, and that's where like my transformation towards happiness or my process towards happiness really began. I, I, I engaged in learning something new. I, um, I made new friendships. I invested in that. And then after I graduated, I, um, I got a great job and on paper, but I didn't have this sense of purpose and meaning in that job. And so I met a group of volunteers who were talking about a happiness event and I heard their motto, I choose happiness. And in that moment it crystallized for me and I, I knew that I chose happiness. And so, um, I, six months, six weeks later, I, I quit my job and I put my time, my talent, and my treasure in, um, founding the world happiness summit, Wahasu, uh, Wahasu to, to produce and organize the world happiness summit. So that was October 2016. We had the first summit in March 2017 to celebrate the, the United Nations International Day of Happiness and um, and bring the world together um, around celebrating happiness, but in a scientific, uh, evidence-based way. So um, gathering the leading experts from Harvard and Yale and University of Pennsylvania Oxford, London School of Economics, Stanford, et cetera, University of Miami, to come together and um, teach an evidence-based approach to well-being. And it was hugely successful. So many different people came around the world. We also have a government meeting called the H20, where we bring this knowledge to country leaders and, and, and civic servants so that we can start putting this into country policy like New Zealand did in 2019, bringing the the well-being into the uh, country agenda. And uh, and we focus on personal, interpersonal, uh, organizational, community, civic well-being because um, our goal is to um, help individuals uh, understand their, you know, th- their connection to their own personal well-being, but also to change systems, particularly the the um, the educational system, uh, workplace, of course, and then uh, and then civic well-being, like like I mentioned before, and it has been amazing. It has been such an such an incredible journey because we went from a live in-person event to a. Um, a grassroots movement to a lifestyle choice and now a whole a well-being ecosystem. And it kind of happened, you know, organically, which is really something that I'm very proud uh, about because I don't like to force, um, I don't like to force, you know, uh, not only actions, but learnings or so forth that other people are doing or that they're not needed or um, our, our premise is about innovation and creating things that nobody else is doing. So, for example, um, we created a Chief Happiness Officer Certificate Program 
co-certified with Florida International University School of Hospitality Management, and it's the only one in the world that is uh, certified by a university. So um, we're, we're constantly innovating. Uh, the agenda is very innovative. It's, uh, it's holistic. It's multidimensional. It's inclusive. It's fun. A happiness conference should be fun. <laughs> so, so that's been the journey. Well, first of all, congratulations. Um, it's Thank awesome. And, and for me, it's been an honor to be a part of some of the incredible things that you've been able to accomplish. So, you know, I want to I want to go back to you and your story a little bit, because what you went through, what you're describing, what you're sharing is, you know, post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. I think we often hear about post-traumatic stress is real. It exists. It's it's likely mostly misunderstood by those that don't struggle with it. But I think post-traumatic growth is also something that we don't hear enough about. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about how you were able to grow from that experience personally? And what are some of the nuggets that you learned about resilience that help kind of keep you going and in particular in in the over the last year that we've had so it's funny um how i found out that i had experienced post-traumatic growth i was speaking to one of um to one of the experts dr itai itzvan he's amazing he's a mindfulness expert and he's a positive psychologist etc um and I was talking to him. I said, you know, I want to write a book and I, and uh, maybe it's around resilience and such and to tell the story about the summit and, and, and what happened. It might help others, um, you know, connect with hope, with hope from loss mm-hmm. and, and such. And he's like, and he explained to me, he says, you know, you're not a resilience expert. You've actually, you're actually an expert on post-traumatic growth. <laughs> and I had heard about it, but then I went deeper and, uh, and it's true because I didn't go back to a set point. So resilience, you go back to a set point, you go down, and then you go back to a set to, to your original, you know, um, bounce back where you were. And actually, what what I experienced, and many many people do as well, is uh, is growth post trauma. And the interesting thing about it is that you can be growing as you're going through the trauma. Yeah. And what I experienced is that that. It was happening at the same. I just wasn't aware at that time that I was growing. But then afterwards, once that I was able to, to um, I don't know if you the word would be quiet the trauma because you know there's the scars are there, uh, right? You know from from the event. But it was this amazing, amazing energy and focus on life and the, it, what, one of the um, distinctions is like possibilities. All of a sudden, my life was full of possibilities. And the relationships were also more enhanced and there were different dimensions to relationships that weren't there before. A new sense of spirituality in that, that there was something greater than me. So um, I really tapped into kind of the, the, the servant a narrative so mm. something that was really important and, and this is critical critical for anyone that's going through challenging times do not uh, connect with or associate with the victim narrative i mean that is game over that's yeah. one of the things that you really have to fight um in a purposeful way 
Um, there's a fantastic expert, Dr. Margarita Tarragona. She's an expert on narratives. It's very important for your identity not to associate that. And it's very tempting when you've suffered because there's kind of nice things that go around that. Like people will do things for you. You don't have to be that nice. You don't have to be that careful. You know, th things things can slide and such. And of course, when you're when you're in pain and and and, and such and, and having a real challenging time, you're not going to be at your best. But you have to really be careful not to, you know, own that own that story for yourself. And so that was something that. I didn't do back when my husband passed away and then during during COVID as well. And it was tempting, like, oh, my God, is this ever going to, you know, we can't go anywhere. Why is this happening to us? Why is this whole thing? And so that to really purposefully re retrain, because what happens is that, you know, we are... <laughs> we are fighting biology. So we have a negativity bias. We, our brains naturally ruminate, right? So we have all these things that are going on. We focus on frames that were created a long time ago. And since we can't process all sensory information, we're going to process to our frames. So survival. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But the beautiful thing is that we can do something about that. So yeah. we can, you know, happiness is a process. So the choice is in the process. You can't choose just to be happy in like positive emotion right now. No, you, you can't do that unless you have like, I don't know, a drink or you, you know, you have a chocolate or you buy or somebody gives you a gift or something like that. But what is really cool is that you can choose the process much like you can choose to train for a marathon or to go to the gym for your, for your physical body. Right. Then you can, um, you can do the same for for well-being and for happiness. So um, the narrative is extremely important. Uh, the language, the words you say to yourself, the words you say to others, really important because they carry a lot of significance around that. Um, then for me, uh, yoga is critical. Mm -hmm. um, that's the way that I meditate. I find it very difficult to sit and just meditate. And so I encourage people that have a hard time around that to find a different ways. For some people, it's running. Other people's walking outside. Others is yoga. It could be coloring. So you can find a way that works for you. But really taking a small amount of time outside of your, your thinking brain is so important. Another thing is music. So listening to your favorite song that activates centers in your brain that that are you know the happiness centers like like few other things and and that really elevates it's like a jolt like a like a recovery period you can have a, a a song you know during the day that you'll dance to and that literally takes like five minutes and it's like a recovery period during the day we tend to think that if we just go you know go throughout and just finish and do like a, the do our work without a break and just continue and eat in front of our laptops and such. Um, we're going to be pr more productive, and I'm sh and you know this, Jen. We're not, and that's not. just biology. <laughs> that's not a that's not a value judgment. Like because if you're a human being and you have a human body and a human brain, it doesn't work that way. So what I find in in the work that I do that is so just amazing is that you know you can teach this awareness because. Yeah. People know intuitively what makes them happy. So you don't really have to tell people that bit. People kind of know that. They just don't take time mm -hmm. to become aware of what it is 
that makes them feel well. And it's because we're always doing and doing. And so I think to a certain degree with uh, the, the, the period that we had during COVID where we couldn't get on airplanes and we couldn't, you know, go to, to, to shopping. Uh, of course, there's online shopping, but we couldn't have all these distractions. Then we, we became a bit more self-aware. You know, where's my, what am I doing? What's, what, what am, what is going right? What is going wrong in my life? What, what do I have control over? And there's another thing that's really, really cool is, you know, the work on, for example, optimism and hope. And so if you, if you think that this is happening to all of us, so, you know, the COVID situation is happening to, happening to us all. And we, we, we all want our lives back and we have a sense of, of loss. It could be small, medium or large. And, and we're in it together. And that also this will end. Those are, those are frames and they're real. They're part, they are real. It's not having rose colored glasses, but it is reality that this will end and that we're in it, all of us. It's not just happening to us because we're so egocentric that we think we have it worse than anyone. Um, and, and, and so for hope, it's really important to, know, to, to pay attention that it is, it is a global thing and that it will end. So we have this, this, this joint community with others and to understand that, that we're in this together. Reaching out to people is incredibly important. Social, um, the, the relationships are very, very important. And, um, and, and I encourage people that instead of waiting for others to call you and check in on you, that you take the initiative and check in on them and then they're going to check in on you. So it's going to feel good. You're doing something for others because of the altruism loop. And you're going to also get, um, get, you know, get rewards from, from that interaction. So there's so many things that we can do and there's such a kind of low hanging fruit. And I think Jen, that sometimes we think that since it's so elemental that it could, can't possibly work, but you know it does work. Yeah. <laughs> it well, really- it, it is. You know, in, in a sense, it's it's simple. It's human beings that make it complicated, right? <laughs> in our own heads. <laughs> exactly. We yeah. have these old ways ways of yeah. thinking that just don't. They're antiquated. They don't work. They don't work on you know on productivity at, at work. Yeah. Engagement. Um, well-being, for example, we, this is this is a, a, a disease that has no cure yet. We have the vaccine, but it has no cure. And so it's also really important for us to build our physical well-being. And one of the ways we can do that is through our emotional and mental health. Yeah. So we can actually um, improve our immune system in this way as well. Yeah. So let's dive into the topic of of happiness um, a little bit. You know, you talk about happiness as as a process um, or a practice, right? And I, I think for a lot of people, happiness, to your point, they know what makes them happy. But happiness as a process or a practice is a little bit misunderstood, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, either I'm happy or I'm not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so what do people get wrong about happiness? I mean, it, you can't be in a constant state of happiness. That's just not realistic, right? There's bad things that happen in life and we have other emotions. So first, I guess the, the, the definition that I've learned from the experts and that I hold to be my kind of definition of happiness is or or 
components of happiness. There's a an emotional component, and mm-hmm. then there is a thinking or cognitive component. So mm-hmm. the emotional part, one, it's it's positive emotion and it feels good, right? And yeah. you cannot absolutely be feeling that all the time. Um, like Tal Ben Shahar says, you know, only there's only two kinds of people that don't feel negative emotions, psychopaths and dead people. So if you feel <laughs> negative emotion, it's good news. You're, doing you're okay. not dead and you're not a psychopath or a sociopath, okay? So um, th- that absolutely painful things will, will be painful. I mean, that's that would make you normal. Yeah. Um, and then the other part is the cognitive part. So that's where like uh, mindfulness and purpose and meaning and kindness and forgiveness and, and, and those elements and positive relationships and those are the things that feel good but in a different way you know maybe doing something for somebody is not it doesn't make you happy in the positive emotion kind of way but it makes you feel fulfilled it makes you feel useful you know and so motivated and 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 the great thing is that those are the things that we really have impact over because we can choose to do things for other people we can choose to be kind we can choose to forgive right we can choose to uh, uh, find out what our values are and what um how those align with with our communities or with our workplace etc so those are things that we can purposefully do and the research shows that when you do those things then you experience more positive emotion so you have to tackle happiness indirectly. The research shows that if you tackle happiness directly, you actually become more unhappy. Mm. There's that whole pressure. You know, can you? I was happy ten minutes ago. Am I happier? I'm less happy now. <laughs> I'm going to be happy later. And then you have this whole anxious thing. But if you uh, focus on your relationships and on engagement, meaning, purpose, accomplishment, and different experts have different frameworks, and I think that. They're all excellent, and I think that individuals can pick bits and pieces from mm-hmm. from different uh, um, experts' models. The important thing, again, is to be aware that that is how you elevate your well-being, by pursuing those components, and those are the ones that you tend to have, you know, more control, more control over, and... And, and so that's that's where the, the process part, the building blocks, that's where you put it all together. And the great thing is that when life happens, because life happens, I, I've given up saying that something is, you know, good or bad, really, because it's like it happens. <laughs> it's just life. <laughs> it's, it just happened, you know. So um, so when that happens, you, you then um, have this framework to to activate so uh, for me covid it, or just 2020 was really challenging for many reasons we had to you know cancel the summit which six days before it was going to happen yeah and it's like you know like my baby and um worked for a year to put it together and in all those things and then all of a sudden you can't have it right so that was a loss and and an uncertainty around that, but, but pivoting into creating online content and and writing and programs and community building and and helping and and that made that really you know made me feel better and that was for, from service and and purpose, 
but it, it did. It was painful. It was really, it was painful. It was disappointing. Um, and, and so people that that's, it's, it's, but it's so amazing because then when life happens, it doesn't, it doesn't have to hurt so much and you don't have to stay down there as long if you have a framework. And the other thing that I think is incredibly important is that sometimes you have to act before you feel. Mm. So I started, I started uh, copying what happy people did before I felt happy. So happy people smile, happy people say yes when people invite them to lunch or dinner and I remember the first time that I laughed, and it almost, it almost brings tears to my eyes right now. The first time I gave myself permission to laugh it must have been like 10 months or maybe almost a year after my husband died. Wow. Because you have these, uh, these concepts like widow, like that word is awful. It, there's nothing good associated with that word. I don't even know why we need to have it. Um, and, and, uh, and so... So, you, you know, you have to take purposeful action. Oh, that's, that's really powerful, you know, taking action before you feel it. So you, I mean, you weren't giving yourself permission to laugh or do these things because you felt like you didn't deserve them or you felt guilty or what was it that was keeping you from it? Just the narrative in your own head? well in my head and if you see any tv shows or you see movies there's a whole you know i mean like think about it you wear black before and, and years ago ten, yeah. uh, what 50 100 years ago you wore black for a year you know that's so fair. i mean you're not laughing right right yeah fair, um, fair right that, so you're that's what you're kind of told I, I, to yeah and you don't know supposed to. yeah you don't know and he died young and i was super young so i was 42 and so I was like, what does this even mean? Because it hadn't happened to anybody that I knew. Mm. I mean, at that age, right? Old right. people would die, that part. Although in Western society, it's always a shock when somebody dies, regardless of what age. We're completely unprepared for this event. It's a huge, huge even, shock. Even though we know it's coming exactly. for all of us, right? <laughs> exactly. So so that was the thing that I, I was like, what what am I supposed you don't know it's like yeah. almost like when you have kids you have a child and you don't know what to do with it you only know what you've read and what you've seen but it's like okay what what really happens here and the same thing with this event I didn't know what it was like and um I didn't even know that I was being courageous or that I was strong I was you know that was the my way to survive this mm. was to fight to find a way to be happy that was it. Because if not, it would be like the living dead. Or I, I do completely um, see that, you know, our physical and our mental and emotional well, is, is tied and connected. Yeah. So I was sure that I was going to die if I didn't, if I didn't, um, if I was just going to go into, you know, depression or, or a pity party. Um, one time my mom, so one time about four, three months after he died, you know, I went to my mother and I said to her, why me? You know, like, why me? And she said to me in a loving way, is she said, why not you? Mm. And I, that thought never went into my mind again. Like, that was it. I never felt, 
you know, I, I never, that was my la- my first and only pity party. And of course, there's times that, you know, particularly with children, I have two child, two boys. And so, you know, you want, you want the, that there at the graduation and like, you know, they're becoming men. And so that they could talk to the father and ask recommendations about different things and they could have these conversations. And so I feel, I feel bad that they can't, they don't have that. Right. But, you know, it's, uh, that's it. Can't go there. Can't go down that rabbit hole. You know, I choose not to go there because that's dangerous for everyone. And there's no, there is absolutely nothing good that can come out of that. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's shift a little bit. Thank you for, for sharing that. But let's talk about, you know, one of the areas of focus that you and I connect often on is happiness in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And how can we cultivate a happiness culture <laughs> in our organizations? What can leaders do? Um, what can teams do to create a culture that encourages and supports happiness and well-being? This is one of my favorite topics because it's so doable. It is so doable and it's so um, the the benefits just to, to the whole uh, community and system are so great. It's such a win-win. Um, the first thing, and you and I have talked about this, is a language of well-being. We need vocabulary. What does this mean? What is, like I just explained, what is happiness? What is well-being? What is a, a gratitude? How are you kind at work? How can, you know, what, how can you express support? So these concepts, we think everybody knows them, but we don't know them in action and certainly not in action at work. How do we communicate challenge how can we have challenging conversations at work in a positive way right we don't have to say it doesn't mean you say yes to everything that your colleagues or employees or bosses want or you know but but it's it's the way that you communicate it in in that it's non-aggressive and non-threatening that there's a space for people's opinions and for people to feel like they matter to you know it's very important for individuals to add value and feel like they're valued. And so um, the space for that to happen, to have that vulnerability or to be able to ask questions or to ask support, it's so important. And for some reason, we think that if we allow people that space, they're going to become lazy and not productive when actually it's the opposite. Like not allowing that space for people makes them anxious scared and disengaged so communication is so important and 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 noticing people and treating them like they matter and even if the answer is no i can't do that or i can't do that yet it still gives the person space to feel like they were important enough to be listened to and many times that's what people need. And other times it's a quick fix. My God, before COVID, how many organizations said impossible for you to work at, uh, from home? Impo- yeah. like impossible. One day, impossible. You leave two hours early, impossible. Start at one hour late, impossible. And now look at, the, look at the incredible possibilities that we see in place, the flexibility. And, and so, and that's innovation. That's innovation to be able to say, hey, you know, as long as you're doing your project and, and, and you're meeting the criteria, 
in this position, you can do X, Y, Z that you want to do. In this other position, maybe you can't. So for example, if you're a surgeon, you're going to have to be in the hospital with the patient. I mean, that's that, but, but see, but people, we were not even thinking about those things before. Like we were just treating everybody in the same bucket. So then what happens? Individuals feel like they are not visible. And one of the most toxic things for people to feel is to feel invisible. Mm-hmm. So um, those are the, the the beginning points, and then you can go, you can start, you can do all kinds of things that that are really incredible. The community building, the value surfacing, uh, making sure that the employees. Um, feel like their values are aligned with the organization and that the organization really lives those values. Um, the servant leadership is incredibly important, I think. How do uh, the leaders can um, ask their, their, their staff, their employees, what they need to be successful? Um, I think that on the large part, people really do want to perform well yeah. feels good to be successful, you know, mm-hmm. like children. Children feel good doing their homework or doing well and excelling. And if they don't, there's a problem with the system, not necessarily the kid. So there's either like the culture or or the uh, education system. So at work, that's that that's what happens. And, and one of the other parts that to me is really important, I think, is the whole uh, human resources conversation. I think that most human resources directors and such are are overburdened with like everything. It's like you know you throw everything into that bucket and and it's a lot, right? And 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 sometimes they're not necessarily trained for well being, and so you have to train for these things because this is new. This is something that we really started surfacing in the last twenty to twenty five years. The the science behind well being, the practice, positive psychology. And certainly in the workplace. And so you need training around that so that you can um, bring it to, to the different teams. Yeah. And I would, I would argue in the, wor- in the workplace, it's a lot less than <laughs> maybe in the last five to 10 years in the workplace. Yes, yeah. yes you're right. Yeah. And it takes time. It, it takes, takes time. time because we have been doing things the other way forever. So it right. will take time, but beginning to have the conversation, beginning the trainings, beginning the workshops and doing those kinds of things are the way to go. And it's not, by the way, having a keynote speaker come and speak at your event, you know, your annual corporate event that one time, which is great, but that's, that's not going to move the needle. You need to, you need to institute uh, maybe, you know, coaching throughout, check-ins, accountability, um, awareness of how your brain works on how relate positive relationships work how do you optimize for success in that way i think we don't do enough at, at work to to create positive relationships um and, well, and i agree with that <laughs> given i have a book coming out about that exactly. very topic <laughs> but it's doable right it is it's, it's doable. doable we are meaning makers and meaning comes from relationships, you know, Mm -hmm. in in large part, that's where the meaning in our life comes from as other human beings. So exactly. Yeah, exactly. Beyond the workplace, what, what else are you seeing around the world? You talked about New Zealand um, when it comes to happiness and well-being, and, and where do you, 
Where do you think this is going? Uh, so uh, Europe has the Beyond GDP uh, initiative, which I think began in 2019. So also beginning to measure country success beyond just GDP. So GDP is very important. And, and actually for, for countries that, you know, that are uh, not high in GDP, it's very important. It's tied, it's pegged to well-being. So in those countries, it's really important to look at, at, at you know, at, at money. And, and how, how much um, money citizens have and to, to, to increase their well-being. But in developed countries, actually, there's an inverse uh, connection between um, the more money you ba- make and, and, and the well-being. It comes, comes down, actually. It's an inverse relationship. Um, and what I see is a necessity of bringing this into school systems so we have huge problems in how we educate our children it's antiquated you know Mm -hmm. if you look at a at a phone a hundred years ago and you look at uh, a cellular phone now you see how we've progressed if you look at a a car a hundred years ago and you see an electric car now it's amazing feat of of technology and engineering. And if you look at a classroom a hundred years ago and you look at a classroom now before COVID, it's almost the same. And, uh, and we, we teach children subjects that are just external to themselves. And so we don't give them the opportunity to connect with who they are in the space around that. So self-awareness, um, mindfulness or virtues or, what are these? What are these principles that we expect from them, but we don't teach them how to be, and we completely over um, overload them with activities. So I think there's 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 going to there is already, but there there is really a big movement around bringing well being into into education. It's very important. Um, uh, measuring so there's a big move to measure well-being um, at work and I think that's wonderful in the same way that um, the World Happiness Report measures well-being in countries but where I see the necessity and and you know my work with with Wahasu is that I would love to collect the practical, approach or the policies that then you can implement once you've measured because measuring is great but it's not enough so um and uh and so it's it's almost like what three things can you do you know what three things can you do so on the personal level we've been doing that and it's very successful and people you know are just having amazing uh positive transformation in their lives in in Many then take it to universities around the world. And there's a university, for example, in Bogota, Colombia, 35,000 students. One of the ladies came to the summit and then she implemented it into, into her university. So now 35,000 kids are getting this. Um, and, and on in American University in Cairo and some other universities in, in Mexico and through that, the United States. So that's really great. But... I almost feel like if, if I would love to be able to have like a collection of action points for, you know, for, for countries to start putting into policy, like these three things we're going to be looking at 
or these that we're going to do a training in this we're going to do um a, a design in 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 our public spaces like that there's a whole, another movement around bringing um design and the psychology of the city through design to improve yeah. well-being which is very important and it's an yeah. opportunity that's there you have to you have to um put a bus bench or you have to design a park center and such but there's a way that you can do it through uh through a sense of beauty that can increase community and then even have opportunities for children where they can play and also learn at the same time play is very important actually yeah. for um for the development of of, of people so um and that's one thing yeah. we forget how to do as, exactly. as adults, or we're told not to do as adults, right? Exactly. And it's <laughs> very is only for children. Yeah. Exactly. But we even took that away. We took away recess, right? <laughs> so um, so those are, those are kind of really important points. And I think that we have to really connect with the um, not so much, I mean, the elected officials can be kind of the ambassadors or spearheads of this, but then the ones that do the work are the ones that are going to be there whether one party versus another party wins. Because, yeah. this, as you know, these initiatives take time. And so if we're switching them out every four years, it, they're not going to take. And I feel like that's something that happens, that you, that we, we reinvent the wheel every four years or every six years or eight years, wherever uh, whichever country uh, people are from, and and we so we miss those opportunities. And I almost think there needs to be a kind of universality of of policies that we're going to that we're going to commit to to implementing on for, hum- uh, for yeah. humankind. It's, yes. <laughs> well, you know, it it sounds funny, but it's almost like a United Nations yeah. of well being. Mm-hmm. That's something that I my I don't whole think that world. sounds funny. I think yeah. that sounds phenomenal. <laughs> that's <laughs> sign my me, hope. Sign me up. <laughs> that's my hope with Wahasu that we could collect the the movements around the world. That we could collect all the things that people are doing well and to sh- shine light on it, and then to have the different communities come together and then you know innovate together with existing programs that they have so so it's kind of like collecting the droplets around the world so we can have a watershed moment and i think that with covid we have a global collective experience that we can all identify with and we have an opportunity to do something better to to do something better that will make people happier and have um increased mental health physical well-being um and and can be a way to almost like a global post-traumatic growth from this experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, we need that for sure. <laughs> Speaking from my own experience. So yes. I have one, I have one last question for you, Karen, and this has been an, an awesome conversation. So thank you. And this is something that I ask all of my guests. I feel like you perhaps answered this throughout our conversation, but I'm going to ask it again. What is your personal definition of well-being? So my personal definition of well-being is um, a bit like I, 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 I answered before on, on happiness. To me, they're interchangeable, really. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's this, this idea of a, of a process, of a process that has an emotional and a cognitive component, and that there's a lot that we can control and be purposeful about. And even if we mess up, by the way, 
Um, if we mess up, we can still tap into these skills that we can learn. And, uh, and so feeling well is about positive emotion, about fun, about relation, good relationships, about having meaning and purpose in your life, feeling that there's something greater than yourself, connecting with that, um, serving others, uh, practicing kindness, forgiveness, gratitude. And so um, th- those, th- that's what to me is, is well-being, is investing yeah. in that and, um, and harvesting that and then reaping the fruit of, of that, of what you've cultivated. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being on the show. I really enjoyed the conversation. I know our listeners will get a lot out of it too. So thank you. Thank you very much. This was fantastic. I always love to speak with you. I'm so grateful uh, for your for your support and your part- participation in, in our programs. And I cannot wait to read your book. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so grateful Karen could be with us today to talk about happiness. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher, or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well.